to In Search of Tarot, a podcast for the mystically curious and epically magical. Through conversations on tarot, spirituality, and mysticism, my goal with this podcast is to create a friendly, accessible space to think critically about the unknown and the unknowable. It is my belief that truth comes to us in the form of questions rather than answers. So let's enjoy the journey together. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to In Search of Tarot. My name is Nick, and I am a queer, non-binary tarot reader, teacher, and writer based in New York City. Whether this is your first time here or you're a return listener, I am honored and thrilled to be with you. I'm recording this on a moody, rainy, foggy day here in New York. These are my favorite kinds of days. I live for I live for the mood, um, the drama. My uh, bridge that I see outside my window has all but disappeared from the fog, and I'm just loving it. Um, and feeling the energy already intensifying under uh, tonight's new moon in Aries. This Aries energy has really had me thinking a lot about uh, claiming identity, You know what it means to step into ourselves, celebrate who we are, and imagine a healed world in which we aren't taught to hate ourselves from birth. Imagine that. These days, I personally am most inspired by the unicorns among us who survive somehow, who somehow manage to find the strength and the determination and willpower to prioritize expressing themselves with absolute technicolor authenticity rather than succumbing to the sepia tone sameness that the matrix has prescribed for us. As some of you may know, my friend and peer Mallory Hasty and I have started hosting monthly IG live chats every new moon. We've been doing it since January. And yesterday, Saturday, we spent an hour talking about the suit of wands in honor of uh, the cardinal fire energy of Aries. And I had more aha moments during that talk than I can count, honestly, but one in particular really stood out to me because to be honest, it was about a card that I haven't really paid that much attention to until then, which is the six of wands. Many depictions of this card inspired by Pamela Coleman Smith's illustration for the Rider Waite Smith deck feature a figure mounted on a horse holding a wand that has been crowned with a celebratory wreath of victory as others are sort of crowded around waving their own wands up in the air and, you know, cheering and shouting. There is a lot of energy and dynamism in this card. And you get the feeling that the figure is perhaps a heroine among the village, or at least someone that people are literally looking up to. And this got me thinking about public figures who are really in the public eye and who choose uh, what they choose to do with that, you know, and also people that may be in the public eye, not by choice, uh, and how they choose to express themselves in the face of adversity. When author, speaker, and performance activist Alok Menon speaks about the history of trans and non-binary people who have resisted and refused the arbitrary dictates of our Western colonial gender binary, they often talk about them with reverence and awe, pointing out how they are the shoulders upon which the trans and non-binary community of today now stands. This is a quote I'd like to share with you from Alok. I want us to think about the self-knowledge and self-worth of our trans and non-binary ancestors who, in the face of attempted genocide and erasure, said, I would rather be beautiful. For every attempt to invisibilize, erase, disappear, criminalize, malign, demean, and eviscerate us, we have always stubbornly and resistantly continued to be fabulous. 
One of my study group participants who was assigned male at birth and now identifies as non-binary recently shared a story with me that speaks to this. Every morning before work, they adorn themselves, their hair, their nails, hats, outfit, etc., gathering their tarot cards, crystals, journal, and other mystical paraphernalia into a large floral bag before boarding the train. They said that they get a kick out of watching other passengers side-eye them and watch as eyebrows begin to raise as they happily shuffle their cards. And once they shared, a woman tapped them, gestured to the cards and whispered, we're kindred spirits, you and I. This really gave me a lot of hope, made me smile, and also really made it clear to me how inspiring people that live so authentically can be. I will be honest and say, I wish I lived that authentically. I wish I could say that I was brave enough or tapped in enough to even honestly know who it is that I want to express myself to be. You know, I think a lot of my life I've lived without questioning a lot of the givens because I haven't had to. I've been privileged enough to not need to question them. But the people who live in such bright, beautiful ways, such as Alok and my study group participant I spoke about earlier, really remind me and inspire me and make me want to live more fully. They make me want to live more, more full lives. Uh, they show me that life can be richer and deeper and wider and more colorful and more varied and more expansive than anything we get shown in mass culture, in mass media. We are served flat, two-dimensional depictions of what our lives can be. I want to be clear, though, that none of this is easy. The society that we live in is doing everything it can on a daily basis to grind these prismatic humans into the dust of submission. And any victories that are achieved over assimilation have been hard earned during perilous fights, both within and outside of themselves. But as non-binary social media influencer Jeffrey Marsh points out, there are a lot of people who have been programmed to be disgusted by the way I look and by my personhood but I also represent potential to a lot of people. And a lot of people who have also been called freaks find it difficult to see me or look at me because I'm reflecting back the absolute insistence that they love themselves because I did it, because I'm worth it, they're worth it too." End quote. The unicorns and those who see them. That's who I'm thinking about under this new moon in Aries. And that's what I'll be thinking about from now on every time I pull the Six of Wands. My guest today is another fabulous unicorn, the incredibly kind and talented Cedar McLeod. Cedar is a queer artist and author living in Southern California. They are the creator of the Numinous Tarot and other divination decks, which feature vivid watercolor illustrations of queer and marginalized people enjoying their own brand of magic. The power of storytelling to heal trauma is central to Cedar's work, along with a focus on compassionate honesty. I had the most expansive conversation with Cedar, and I'm so grateful to them for joining me and so excited to share it with all of you. And to launch you into this dialogue, I'm bringing back my former co-host, Erica Conaway's incredible song that she and AJ Ackleson wrote for the podcast as an homage to Aries season. It's titled Fire in the Spring. Enjoy.
my name's Cedar. I'm an illustrator, an author, and a tarot reader. I created the Numinous Tarot a few years ago, which is my best known deck, but since then I've also put out the Threadbound Oracle, as well as a novel that goes with it called The Thread That Binds, and a surprise uh, oracle deck called The Uncertain Oracle, which came out last year after the 100-day challenge. Amazing. And I was I was telling you before we hopped on that, um, you know, I'm a, definitely a proud backer of the second edition of the Numinous Terra that's coming out um, via Kickstarter. And just, you know, I, I have to tell you, we're going to dive into this today. But I when I found your deck, it 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 really is honestly exactly what I feel like I've always been looking for. I mean, I, I really want you to know that I um, have searched for so long for something that, um, you know, was able to expand fully past gender and and even beyond that for for like full representation and inclusivity and um very grateful you're here and just very grateful to you for your work i'm so happy to hear that you're not the first person to tell me like oh this is this is what i've been looking for that i couldn't find and every time i get that sort of message it's it just feels so validating for all the work that went into it and all the uh the back in the day, sort of the fears that like people wouldn't understand it or it would be too niche or things like that. So let's talk, let's start by talking a little bit about your art practice just as a whole, um, you know, inside and outside of tarot. So I, I see that you were born and raised in Maryland and you graduated from Towson University with a BS in painting, drawing and printmaking. And yeah, I would just love to hear about your journey with art. You know, how did that develop for you, your interest in it as a child? And, and then particularly, what was your experience like receiving a quote unquote formal education in art? Yeah. I, I've been an artist my entire life. Uh, I'm blessed that I have an artistic family. Both of my grandmothers were artists. One of them was a professional artist who did gallery showings of her abstract watercolors and collages. Mm. And my mom was a graphic designer and a photographer. So I was always really encouraged to do artistic things, which I know a lot of people who weren't encouraged struggle. But because I was so supported, I was able to just you know, chase after the dream and like really express myself. Mm. Um, when I was 11, my friends and I got into anime and manga, which, you know, the boom was sort of happening at that time around like 2001-ish. Mm -hmm. And we were like, oh, let's learn how to really draw. I, I had always been making up stories and things in my head since I can remember. And I've felt really, really motivated to be like, I really want to like draw the stories that are in my head. I want to draw these characters. So we bought, uh, you know, how to draw books and things like that and started pushing ourselves to learn how to draw bodies and, and plants and perspective and everything. Uh, I was lucky when I was in high school that my school offered a lot of really good art courses and my teacher who I had for all of them, she, she was great. She was the sort of mean teacher who would like walk around and look down her nose at you and you'd be terrified but she was really good at teaching us things mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I was able to do like an independent watercolor study with her and stuff like that so I I got a lot of formal education even just as a teenager despite that I was told by pretty much everybody that you can't make a living doing art or writing so you need to do something else at college. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I, I went to Towson because it was, well, it was a cheap in-state school, but also it's known as a teacher school. And I was like, I'll just be a teacher. Mm. And um, that didn't work. Uh, about halfway through, halfway through my junior year, I had a big old meltdown. It was a really rough time in my life for a number of reasons. And I had a big old meltdown and I decided to switch to an art major and start seeing a therapist and all sorts of things. And it was actually really uh, validating after that. I, I, my grades had been like really dropping and struggling. And it's, education is really hard, like yeah. as a subject, like teachers are amazing. <laughs> I don't know mm -hmm. how they do it. But as soon as I started doing uh, the art major instead, I started getting like 4.0s the rest of the time I was there. Wow. And just feeling a lot more myself because it was also hard to try to be an education major and be trans at the same time. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But 
in the art department, I could really like fully be myself. Right. Yeah. And on your website, you, you speak a little bit about, or you write a little bit about the power of storytelling to sort of heal trauma, you know, and uh, yeah, I'm curious talk a little bit more about, um, about what that was like for you when you switched over to art, you know, what do you, like, how was that? um, What was the healing in that for you? The healing was that I had so much more time and I was allowed to focus on um, the thing that lets me express myself the most. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that was really draining for me about my previous major was that I, it was, it kept me so incredibly busy that I had no time to make art and art, both art and like fiction writing for me are a way of expressing feelings I don't have direct words for. Uh, it, it could be very hard for me to put my certain like very deep or convoluted feelings into words that I feel other people understand. It's very, it could be very frustrating, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. painting and drawing and writing fiction, I feel like gives me an outlet to like show that com- complexity in a way that actually gets across what I want to get across. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I I was a dancer for most of my life and it's a little similar in that, you know, I, when I dance, I feel like I'm able to be someone that I'm not really any other time, you know, it just kind of lets me access something else, you know, and, and, uh, and I don't have to use words, you know, I can, like you're saying with art, you can use art, you know, and I, and I can use my body, um, in a way that I can't necessarily find words for. Yeah, it's so freeing in that way to use movement or symbolism or color to express. And I think that's how it it ties too into the spirituality part because there's so much, for me at least, like spirituality is based a lot in like the mystery and magic that's in, in the world and in everything. Mm-hmm. And art just captures those feelings a lot a lot better <laughs> when people like look at your art, especially in tarot, that it brings up things within themselves that it could be something that's just unique to them and their experiences, or it could be sort of, uh, you know, the sort of idea of like the shared collective unconscious that we're all connected to that. And and that sort of, in that way, the art connects us to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm doing my math correctly, which, you know, there's a 50, 50, 50, chance. Cause I'm terrible at math, but, um, you, you said that you became a witch in 2001 and that would have been during your time in school. So I was curious how, how that came about for you and how you discovered magic and witchcraft. Yeah. So I was, well, I was 11. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I was 11 and I, I had always been really into reading fantasy novels as a kid. I was a huge reader, always had my nose in a book. I was basically in both personality and looks, I was Hermione Granger. So, <laughs> and uh, one one day a friend like brought, brought to our little group, like a book of like, it was like little like teen witch luck spells or something. And I was like, wait, this is real. <laughs> like, this is a real thing. <laughs> like people really do magic. And I was allowed at the time to, we were allowed as a group to like ride our bikes down to the library by ourselves and check out books. And so I, I went to the library and I found the like back corner mm-hmm. on the bottom where there was a tiny little shelf of like silver raven wolf books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I took them all home and hid them under my bed. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my sort of introduction to witchcraft and for a long time, I was Wiccan, but now I would say a polytheist and, and, and all of that, like, you know, I mentioned tarot and herbs and astrology and all, all of those wonderful things. Yeah. So what does being a witch mean to you today? It's interesting. I, I was thinking about this question since you sent it to me ahead of time. And it's actually a thing that I'm sort of reviewing in my life right now mm. um, for after discovering witchcraft for, you know, many, many years, I, I did a lot of, you know, did spell work, which I feel like is sort of the crux of witchcraft, right? Is doing witchcraft mm-hmm. <laughs> and to, to aid different things in my life that were happening or to 
create personal transformation through ritual. And I just haven't been doing as much of that in the last few years. Hmm. I still like follow the moon cycles and seasonal cycles and the astrological weather and incorporate them into my life and my work. I mm-hmm. still do tarot and like divination and things like that, but I haven't really, I have, you know, I have an ancestral altar and whatnot, but I, I haven't been doing actual spell work. And so I've been sort of thinking like, hmm, is witch still a good word for me or not? <laughs> right. Yeah. Were you raised um, religious at all? Not really. Uh, we didn't really talk about religion in my house. We did like celebrate Christian holidays in a more secular way. Mm-hmm. You know, we did like Christmas, Easter, all of that. And we went to church occasionally, but it was like a really liberal community church mm-hmm. where you would hear like, as a kid, I would hear like a 20 minute sermon about being nice to your neighbors and then go run around outside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I was thinking as you were talking, you know, I think that that ebb and flow that you're sort of speaking to, I, I think that happens really to anyone and everyone who's spiritual in any sense, whether that's, you know, religious or not. Um, but in organized religion, you do have like every Sunday we go to this building and do this thing, you know, whereas being a witch, you're, you're a solitary practitioner oftentimes, and you're kind of doing your own thing. So, um, you know, it, it can kind of be a little, like, you know, in a way you can be, you know, maybe lazier, honestly, in a way with, <laughs> with organized religion, because it's just kind of created for you. You know, the book is handed to you. This is what we're doing. We're singing these songs. We're, you know, saying these prayers. But when you're a witch, you're making it all up. So I think it's totally natural that that there would be kind of highs and lows. Yeah, I was definitely the other day thinking of it as I described it to my fiance, I think, as being like someone who says they're Christian and they believe in Jesus and whatnot, but they don't really go to church. Right. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you see your, your, which, you know, identity or your, or magic or spirit, you know, obviously in the tarot work, it's interacting, but in general, like when you practice art, you know, how does it tie in and inform and influence your spirituality and, and vice versa? in a more literal way, I have occasionally I do like bless my paintbrushes or like put them mm. out under the full moon and clean, you know, clean them all up and stuff like that. Uh, since as a traditional artist, I have a lot of physical tools and mm. our tools in art are really like an extension of yourself. Mm-hmm. So they, they deserve that care. I've not always been that good about taking care of my paintbrushes. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's, it, it sort of connects in, for me, when I'm making art, especially when I'm in the painting phase rather than like the drawing sketching part, that it's like a meditative state. Mm. And there's that sense of flow that could be really, it's really similar to the feeling that you might get like while in the midst of a ritual or just listening to the universe, you know, sitting by your altar. Yeah. It's, do you, do you ever find when I was choreographing a lot there, there's this one particular memory I have of making, it kind of was my first piece that ever, um, kind of people told me was good, you know, and, (laughs) and the process of making it, I, I remember there was this one rehearsal where I didn't even look up from the floor. Like I, I just looked at the ground the entire time as I was talking and it just, it did not feel like it was coming from me. You know, it, it truly did feel like that feeling that people talk about of being like a channel, you know, um, have you had experiences like that with art? Like, is there ever a time when you, you know, paint something, you know, you finish painting something and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even remember making this. <laughs> uh Back when I was in college, I think a little bit, because mm. my work at the time, the the training that I was getting at school was in the direction of being like a gallery artist, mm-hmm. like a fine artist. And so my work was a lot more in that vein. And it was usually all based on my spiritual practice at the time. And like, I was doing a lot of like astral journeying and communicating with spirits and things like that. And I think sometimes back then that did happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but with my my modern art practice, it's really more channeled from something within me. I don't haven't really felt like 
I'm channeling something from outside of me in, in those cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you identify as agender and I identify as non-binary, although, you know, to be honest, I feel like agender also could describe me. And I think it's actually kind of important to say that because I think, you know, in the non-binary and trans community, it's, we're really only just now starting to gain a little, you know, traction and respect in the mainstream enough where people are actually starting to talk about, you know, what are the words, what are the pronouns, what, what is the language, you know, kind of around this. Um, and although there have always been people certainly um, throughout time that didn't resonate with the gender binary or who sort of lived outside of the experience of the quote unquote, quote, like Western norm, you know, we, mm-hmm. we're only now starting to be able to put language, you know, to how we feel and, and, and what those words are. And, you know, I think I read this book recently about the history of magic, and it was talking about a lot of ancient mystical traditions, such as the Egyptians that b- believed that speaking, the act of speaking or the act of writing a word actually sort of manifested that into existence. And it was, um, you know, like a literal spell. Um, And I really love this visual from like a magical perspective. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to kind of cast a, a spell for our listeners now by telling us a bit about your own journey with gender and just kind of speaking that into existence. Sure. And I, I, I totally love that. All of that, like, that's a big reason of why I chose um, tomes, like books for the pentacle suit in mm. the Numinous Tarot was the idea that writing something down makes it that much more tangible and that putting names to things holds so much power. So my, my gender journey has been convoluted, uh, which I think is important to share as a narrative because especially it can it can feel safer to have a lot of you know, narratives when we're talking, especially like to cisgender people mm-hmm. that, oh, it was just like, I, I always knew and I felt this way and it makes sense. And mm-hmm. I know, you know, I made all the right decisions and right. therefore I'm valid. <laughs> right, right. Um, I, when, I, when I was a little kid, I definitely didn't really feel like a boy or a girl, but I had absolutely no language for that. Mm-hmm. And I was what some people might call a tomboy, but not really because I wasn't into sports or anything. I just didn't really like girly things in particular, but that's not even that true either. (laughs) Yeah, right. And I, I got a little more feminine by the time I was a teenager, sort of because it felt like what was expected of me. Mm hmm but also because I did find joy in certain things like big floofy skirts uh, and and whatnot. And so I never really felt super uncomfortable being feminine. So I guess I should say I was female assigned at birth. So that was like the the gender role that was expected of me. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in there though, in my teen years, I started discovering that there was language for those feelings. I think I met my first trans person at some time in high school who was a trans man. And I was like, wait, you can do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think before then I had known from pop culture that there were trans women, but I had never heard of someone like going the other way, so to right, speak. Right. And I remember just like, clicking around a Wikipedia hole, sort of like clicking through articles in like 2006 or something and finding the word, which I've never seen since, uh, finding pangender, which it was basically like someone who is all the genders. And I was like, Mm. hey, I like that. That sounds like me. And then through my late teens and early 20s, I kind of like explored all of that. When I got to college, I came out as trans started like wearing men's clothes and like cut my hair short because it had been really long and experimenting with with different ways of presenting myself for names uh calling myself a different name using different pronouns and i certainly the word non-binary wasn't really around at the time mm-hmm. in 2008 and i had friends at the time who were like gender queer i had a friend i did have a friend who was agender um but they, the way that they presented their self, themselves and their gender 
didn't really resonate with me and what I felt I wanted. There's mm-hmm. a lot of more of what we traditionally think of as androgyny, right? Where it's like, oh, I can't, you know, a lack of sexual char- characteristics. Like I can't tell, quote unquote, like what that person is mm-hmm. gender wise. And that's totally valid. And I, I love everybody who that's how they, they live and present themselves, but it just wasn't me. And so I was like, that must not be what I am or who I am. Mm-hmm. Cause I just wanted like the, the ends of the spectrum, like the most feminine things and the most masculine things at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I guess, you know, if I want all this masculine things and like, I have dysphoria about like my voice and, and stuff that I must be a trans man. And so that's how I lived for a number of years. And I went on testosterone for like five years, which did alleviate the dysphoria that I had. And sometime around when I stopped that, I was kind of just like, after living as a man for like five years, I was like, "Mm, I don't know. Mm. (laughs) I don't know. And by then the word non-binary was floating around Tumblr. And I was like, and I had seen so many pictures of other people on the, online who I felt more embodied how I felt inside and how I wanted to see myself. So it really opened up this whole new world of possibility. And, and you know, you were talking about the language and, and that we have to describe ourselves. And that's, it's just so important to, to so many of us, especially me, like some people don't like labels and I a thousand percent respect that. But my, for me, labels have been really uh useful and feeling like I could find community and having a name for for myself and how I felt right yeah thank you so much for sharing all of that and and I I think that labels are something that people who already have plenty of words for how they feel it's easy for it can be easy for them to kind of be like well I'm just going to throw that away whereas someone that has not had that, you know, opportunity. I think that the words can be very important, you know, because you're, you're trying to put words to how you feel and how you feel is outside of what culture is kind of, you know, pushing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also when I listen to that story, you know, I, I hear again, just the, um, you know, because you, like you were sharing, you know, I, well, I, I felt like, some of some things that, you know, are quote unquote masculine, I liked, but some that are quote unquote feminine, I liked and, you know, and, and that to me, I hear the, again, the societal, the outside sort of saying, you know, this is the boys section, this is the girls section, this, you know, that means if you like this, that means this. And, and just the struggle of like, well, I mean, I, I don't fit on either side, you know, like, and, and I, I feel like, I don't know how you, I mean, I'm curious to hear how you feel about this, but I think there are way more people out there that feel this way than are able to say it or able to kind of voice it. I mean, these extreme labels, this extreme polarity is just kind of, it's just kind of silly. I mean, it's like, there's no way that things are that that black and white, you know? Oh yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And people can be so silly about it. I when I was younger, I, I worked in retail and clothing and, you know, you would suggest to somebody like they'd be looking for like white t-shirts, like Canes t-shirts for like a three-year-old. And you'd say, oh, well, we don't have them technically for boys, but we have the like girls, like thick strap tank tops or something. They'd be like, no. (laughs) Or, you know, we'd say here, they'd be like, I want this car seat. You'd be like, it has a purple stripe on it. And they'd be like, no, we, we, no, they're a boy. Yeah. Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, totally. So, so now I'd love to, you know, I've been pretty vocal about this recently, you know, yesterday, I posted something and um, this idea of masculine and feminine as it goes into the spiritual community into magic and witchcraft and the history of that. So, you know, as you encountered that, you know, will you talk a little bit about about that as you were kind of coming into your, you know, witch identity and, and just how you've um, navigated that. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I totally loved that post that you made. I've been sort of thinking and working through it, that sort of topic of, of masculine and feminine as categories, I guess you could say, or descriptors in magical communities, especially around energy mm-hmm. and how 
it's just, we just should get rid of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, um, I remember my first sort of questioning of it when I was maybe in my late teens um, was, you know, people would say like masculine is, you know, this sort of assertive energy or, you know, solar and strong and blah, blah, blah. And then like feminine is the moon and receptive and intuitive. And, but then the same people would turn around and say, oh, but of course women can be strong. You know, right. being, you know, like being a woman can mean strength, like being a woman, like femininity can be assertive and masculinity can be intuitive. And I'm like, so then they're not categories anymore. It falls apart. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, and, and that's the interesting thing when I, you know, I ask for people to submit these words that describe these quote unquote energies and there, the, there was no polarity, you know, and also it means something so different to so many people. Like I, oh, yeah. honestly, I was thrilled to see the word assertive show up in the quote unquote feminine category. I was like, well, that's awesome. But like, you know, what's the opposite of that? And, you know, it's just, um, yeah, I mean, why? And, and I think it's interesting too, that the, the magical and spiritual community can be both so vocal about, you know, non-binary and trans rights and then still cling so tightly to these masculine and feminine concepts. Yeah, it's, language is really entrenched, I guess, because I've seen people literally arguing on Twitter like that, well, masculine and feminine in this context don't actually mean gendered things. And I'm like, well, then why are you using them? Yeah, and honestly, I was reflecting on that this morning. I really think that's gaslighting, honestly. I think it's gaslighting to say that those words aren't gendered because they're literally gendered. I mean, the words themselves are gendered, you know? You're right. It's, I think a lot of people who don't, change is uncomfortable, right? And when those words are such a part of your worldview, and you want to be a good ally and you want to be open, but that's the actual change that we're asking of people is, you know, instead of saying something is feminine, like specifically just say it's intuitive or something, right? Like, right. Yeah. That was another comment I loved on that post. Someone said, um, I really think this gives us the opportunity to actually say what we mean instead of relying on these umbrella terms. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I, I loved that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a chance to be, to just really say, you know, what you're trying to say. <laughs> um, I think oh, that, well, I think it would open up a lot of things for cis people too, not just trans and yes. binary people. Yes. hundred percent. I totally, totally agree. So I would love to hear now about the tarot world in particular, you know, because, um, there's a lot of gender with, with traditional tarot decks and also just the way it's taught and talked about. So, um, you know, what, what was that like for you? You know, did you, did you kind of try to work with tarot in that way? Or, you know, how, how have you, what's your tarot journey been like in relation to gender? Yeah. So I got my first tarot deck when I was 13. Mm -hmm. I had like a, a, a birthday gift card at Barnes and Noble and I like snuck it into my purse, like bought it <laughs> while my mom wasn't looking. And I think then she found out later and it was fine with it. But I think the, the book that I used the most when I was a teenager to learn was like the idiot's guide to tarot or something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so of course it, it had all of the very heavily gendered things where it was like, oh yeah, if you pull a king, it represents a man in your life. Mm -hmm. But I think I started unraveling that pretty quickly because just through doing readings, I found that that was false. Right. You know, like mm -hmm. it was very clear that when I was doing readings for myself or like my mom or my friends or whatever, that those like gender rules weren't applying to what the cards were saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had a lot of queer friends at the time. Like my two best friends were a gay man and a lesbian. And I also like figured out I was queer at some point in there. And so it just made sense. It kind of made sense to me like, oh, well, you know, if I draw this a queen to represent my gay best friend like that you know that's that makes sense right <laughs> <laughs> but so I had to over the years then sort of like work through not just like because for a while it would be like oh yeah it makes sense that you know I would draw a queen for my feminine male friend and sort of working past that and and being like no I don't even have to apply that like <laughs> it's more about the the, ener the other energies of that card, like we were saying, if um, is like, you know, the queen of cups with that 
secrecy and intuitiveness and and emotional just the the intensity emotional intensity right mm-hmm. were the things that that card was representing in that friend right right so is that what made you want to create a tarot deck or did you get to a point where you were like i think i need to make something because i mean i i can't tell you the amount of times i've wanted to cut the bottoms of my cards off that have like <laughs> the words you know or just you know, try to, cause I, I have so many beautiful decks I and mean, I love to collect tarot decks, but uh, that's, I'm just literally counting down the days until I get yours. Cause I, none of them honestly really do it completely in the way I'm looking for. So is that, is that why you were like, I guess I have to do this? It wasn't. I, when I started painting that deck, I, I'd always wanted to make a tarot deck mm-hmm. and I had just graduated from college and I was in a really weird place in my life. And for the first time I had no idea what I wanted to paint. And so the thought of doing a deck was like, well, at least I'll have prompts. Like, you know, I'll have a thing. Each painting has like a specific meaning and imagery that I'll be using. And I wasn't thinking of it. Like I was definitely planning to mix up the like sort of visible gender of the figures in the cards. But at Mm -hmm. that point I wasn't planning on necessarily changing the titles. I did, I did want to change the suits, but I only owned like two tarot decks at that time. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I had this weird thought in my head up until about this point that you could, no one told me this, but in my head, for some reason, I was like, you can only own one deck. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I didn't really, uh, this was the point at which I got actually got in touch with like a community of tarot people Uh because before that, I was just completely solitary in my like tarot practice com- entirely and very, I, I had like, like I said, I had like two decks and the indie deck boom hadn't quite happened yet in 2013. Mm-hmm. There was like the wild unknown and I had the wooden tarot and stuff like that, but there was only like a handful of them out there at, at the moment, but because it took me, I guess it took me so long to to make the deck it took me four years I should say it took me three and a half years to make the first half and it took me six months to make the second half because well because I had been working a full-time job and I had other creative projects like my old web comic and school or no I was out of school but um and things like that and then I was able to speed things up once I went part-time on just doing art things Mm -hmm. and the web comic is how it all kind of started is that right yeah, that was, I, I feel like the webcomic was just sort of my my first step into being a professional with published work that people could interact with. Mm. Um, and I was doing them both at the same time. And once I was finished with the comic, then I was really able to focus on the deck. And because, I guess because I had taken so long to paint it and I've been posting it as I went on Tumblr and whatnot, you know, it was gaining like, attention from other people online and I was connecting with other queer tarot people and or just people of all different identities who were in this world and other people are starting to come out with more indie decks uh or or I was exploring just sort of what more was out there and it sort of happened at the same time that I was making the deck so it was all a big sort of collaborative process in a way Mm, yeah. And so now you have, there's the numinous tarot and then you, you were saying after that came your novel, the thread that binds and the two Oracle decks. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. I, I made the, uh, the thread bound Oracle. Let's see. Was it in 2018? Something like that. I don't know what time is anymore. Yeah. Gosh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the, the concept for that one actually came from the novel story, which originally was going to be a second webcomic, but then I realized it would take me 10 years to draw it. And I was like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I'm good. I love comics. I love the comics community, but it's really, really labor intensive for really, really little pay. Mm -hmm. And because I have a, a bunch of different sort of media options, in my repertoire, I was like, I'm going to write it as a novel instead. Cause I've been writing. I wrote a lot when I was a teenager and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And it's still something that is really important to me. And so, but I, I wanted to be a fantasy novel and I wanted one of the main characters to be a card reader, but I didn't want to just plop the tarot down 
into this secondary fantasy world. So I was like, well, I'll just make them their own deck system. Mm. And so I came up with the Threadbound Oracle for that and created the deck. At the time I had written that I made the deck, I had written like a script, a full script for the comic version. Um, but then I decided to write it as the novel. So the, the deck was already made when I started the novel version and it in the deck itself like sort of impacted some of the ways that the, that the story ended up going, I think. So it was an interesting sort of back and forth between those two projects and yeah. the weird meta way that the character in the novel uses this deck, but the real life version of the deck has the characters on it and is like based on the sort of story tropes and whatnot in the novel. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And also I, I would love to see it as like a, an actual, like a comic movie, you know, I can kind of imagine it coming to life. Would you ever do that? Have you ever thought about that? I think I'm sort of, I think I'm done with that sort of uh, okay. with comics and whatnot these days. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, you mentioned on the website for, um, in the description for the thread that binds, that you have created in this novel, a society without gender that's not androgynous. And we kind of touched on this earlier, but will you kind of expand on that? Yeah, it's, and by, in that androgynous, I mean like the sort of, you know how whenever these days, like a clothing line is like, we're going to put out an androgynous line of clothing. Right. And it's just like potato sacks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that people knew like, it's not that. <laughs> right. You know, it's not that like, there's absolutely nothing in their society that we would think of being as being gendered. It's just everyone's allowed to do whatever they want without it being gendered. Mm -hmm. Right. And that made me think, you know, a lot of people, all people talk about how tarot helps them find themselves. You know, a lot of people describe coming to tarot in a, in a moment where they felt particularly lost, or they say that it kind of helps them figure out who they are. And I really love on the back of the Threadbound Oracle box, uh, there's an inscription where you write paper, ink, thread, sun, moon, stars, a magical library deck for asking questions, seeking answers, and finding a family among the books. And I think that speaks to why representation matters, you know, including the use of gender, because if we're trying to offer a world to people who either are, you know, buying our decks, if we're deck creators and we're trying to offer a world, or if we're looking for a world ourselves when we pull the cards, or if we are trying to help others that we're reading for find a world for themselves, then, you know, it seems like we need to be sure that we're taking into account the most marginalized person first, you know, in our practice and the way we either make the cards or talk about the cards and then work our way back in. But I think a lot of times it happens in reverse where it's like, well, this works for most people, you know, or the, the majority of society feels this way. So it's okay. You know, like, does that, yeah. Mean, yeah. No, I totally know what you, what you mean. Um, I think in my work, what usually happens is I'm like, I'm going to create a, a world, whether it's a deck or a story or whatever, I'm going to create a world where this, where the sort of person that I am is front and center. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've just gotten really lucky that there are, I, there, I guess there are a lot of people who feel the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like you said, it helps, it helps everyone. I mean, it helps, you know, no matter, no matter how you identify it's, it's expanding at all. Um, and but also I think, you know, when I teach tarot, a lot of times people will say, um, you know, when I, whenever I get to this gender portion of the course, I, people will say, well, you know, I, I take it client by client is, is something I hear a lot. You know, I, if the client identifies this way, then that's how I interpret it. But it kind of reminds me, well, two things. One is, would you not want to make sure that when you're reading for yourself, you're reading with a world sense that's as wide as possible, you know, like, so that you're not kind of subconsciously like putting the same norms back into your own brain, you know, that's A, but B, it reminds me of when I was a performer and they always say, you perform the way you rehearse. So you can't expect to like go out on stage and suddenly do something vastly different than how you've been rehearsing it. So uh, yes. yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like, you mean, you, yeah. yeah. So you have to rehearse your readings. Like you can't, you can't expect, particularly like when you're really put on the spot with a client and you kind of have those nerves on top of it, you can't expect that like suddenly your reading is going to shift. And also I think you can't 
put like weight onto like spirit or intuition to like suddenly magically, you know, make everything okay. Like, I think we have to like educate ourselves and meet our intuition, like where we are, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I was sort of, you know, I said like a lot of my work comes from just like putting myself the sort of person I am front and center, but the listening, I think listening becomes such an important skill mm. when we're, especially if you're someone who's wants to read tarot for a client and opening yourself up, like you said, to the most marginalized person or to all of the different uh, possibilities and like worldviews and mm-hmm. um, experiences that you just haven't had. And we're never going to be able to know all of those things or prepare for everybody's like lived experience when they come to you. Mm-hmm. So it just, it comes down to being, um, I think it comes down a lot to, you know, aside from educating ourselves, just being open to, I think, learning something new, you know, yeah. like, and being open to what the people working with you have to say about themselves or their lives or, you know, and, and making it a dialogue instead of trying to anticipate, you know, what you should, how, or what you should give a certain person in return. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think also relieving yourself or sort of taking away this, you know, the sort of older tradition idea uh, that you are being predictive or that you're, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I actually think it's important to honor, you know, like Romani people and the history of that sort of fortune telling kind of, you know, stereotype and why that was actually kind of forced on them to do that, to make, you know, money and and where that kind of comes from. And I'm not saying that tarot can't be used in that way, but I, I do think like if we, if we expect ourselves to somehow magically, literally magically understand every person's experience, I mean, that's just not possible. And I, and I think it's, harmful to think that, you know, I I agree with what you're saying to have the dialogue, to really have the humbleness and the dialogue to say, I, I am here to serve. I'm here to help you. I can't possibly know everything about you. So talk to me, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes a lot of pressure off of when you have privilege in a certain area and you don't want to mess up. Right. Mm -hmm. You have that, that fear of saying something wrong, but if instead you can sort of, I feel like it takes a lot of that, that pressure off to be like, to say just, well, you know, I, I don't know everything, you know, I've learned what I can and let me make space for you to, you know, to talk to me about, about those things that I might not know. Yeah. To be yourself and I'll listen. Right. Right. So when I speak to deck creators, I'm always curious to hear how the process of creating the deck might have changed or expanded how they view cards, particularly if there are any cards that you, you know, maybe like we all have those cards that we're like, I don't really get this one, or I don't really connect as strongly with this one. Is there any card that kind of opened up for you or expanded that you have a closer relationship now through the process of uh, creating it? Oh, definitely. I think as a whole, I learned a lot more about tarot in the four years that it took me to make my first deck than I had learned in the whole 10 years I'd been reading before that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the, the card that came to me immediately was uh, the Hierophant, which in the Numinous Tarot is called the Visionary. And it's one of the cards I think that I, I didn't just sort of change the name, but also changed the interpretation of it somewhat. Mm-hmm. Where, because I'm not someone who's ever really been a part of um, a structured religion and because my focus on the deck was really about coming from a place of like personal mysticism that it opened up for me when I like looked at it as what if you're you're your own spiritual authority like even if you do belong to an organized religion that has like a a clergy or a hierarchy in the end you know you get to decide how you take their words and how you incorporate your religion into your life and how you incorporate tradition into your life. And tradition is also created by somebody somewhere. And so uh, it, it came to me that this, the model more of the, the visionary as a leader in the spiritual realm of allowing more of that sort of intuitive 
ness into it and and being able to make your own choices in the matter so mm. it just changed a lot of that that card for me to sort of flip it around on its head like that and the illustration of that one that's in the deck is actually my second take was my was a redo of that card because i had drawn a card for the hierophant and i was showing the art for it on my phone to somebody at a tarot convention and they were like I don't really get, you know, your interpretation of this one. Like, why is it look this way? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. It's almost as if you were trying to maybe follow even subconsciously, like someone else's vision of like what the hero font usually looks like. And then you kind of, you know, sunk more into your own and then it kind of came out. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what happened. And it was a similar process with, um, the judgment card, which is called Awakening in the Numinous Tarot of, I just didn't really like the idea of like it being like judgment day mm -hmm. as a non-Christian, especially. I was like, that's not, I don't really relate to this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. If I, I'm going to ask you the, the hardest question ever. Do you have a favorite card? Do, like a, a, a favorite card in, in that deck? It can be of maybe whatever a favorite card of yours in your deck, or if you have a favorite card just in general, like in the tarot. Uh, Temperance is my favorite card. I also mm. like death a lot. Mm. Um, and the the Queen of Pentacles is my significator, so that one's always really important to me as well. Mm. Um, but I have a I have a Temperance card tattoo. <laughs> oh, cool! <laughs> that um, I got. It was right after the Numinous deck had um, its first Kickstarter and it was successful. It was, it was really um, synchronistic because the tattoo, well, like I was getting the tattoo like to commemorate, like finishing the deck and getting it funded, but also because Temperance is the card after death. And I just been through a really, really difficult time and felt like I was in a healing place. And it happened to be the 14th, my 14th year of being a tarot reader. Mm. and it ended up my appointment got like moved up and it ended up happening like on the 14th of September oh, wow. <laughs> Every, wow. everything just sort of lined up and it's just a good I think reminder to me about like of healing and that alchemy of sort of for me like the the past and the present or like who I was and who I am after the rebirth you know, the death card, which is one of my birth cards as well. So. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Well, Cedar, this has been incredible. Um, I want to close out by letting you tell people how they can find you, how they can support you and how they can purchase your work. Uh, pretty much everything is available or linked at numinousspiritpress.com. The Numinous Tarot, if you search it on Kickstarter right now, is still going if you'd like to get uh, a copy of the new edition. Otherwise, it's it's been out of print for a little bit. Uh, if You can also find my, my web shop by going to NuminousSpiritPress.com, which does have the Oracle decks in stock if you'd like to get one right away. Or uh, it also has my, my novels in both, or my novel in both paperback and ebook formats. You, you can also find that book on the book on Amazon, Barnes Noble and Kobo, if you search for it. And uh, I'm on Patreon as Numinous Spirit, which is also my Twitter and Instagram handle. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough for joining me today and, and sharing all of this amazing, uh, beautiful wisdom and art with me and with all of us. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure to, to get to talk ab about the work just to anybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening to In Search of Tarot. If you feel called, please share this podcast with someone you think will enjoy it. You can also support this offering by hitting subscribe and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, breathe deeply and be well.